Isaiah chapter 13. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I love how a particular Christian news webcast always ends their news presentation. They, they say these words, whatever the news, and then they quote from Proverbs 19, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Yeah, isn't that great? The, whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. And that is so encouraging, isn't it? When we watch the news and we see what's going on day after day and week after week and we see the nations raging against God and against His anointed, we watch God's people suffering in many places in the world. We see the great powers of the world resisting the rule of the Lord. The purpose of the Lord will stand. If you remember back in chapter 10, um, several weeks ago, we saw from that chapter God's purposes for the empire of Assyria and for His people Israel. And we learned in that chapter 3 really important lessons about how God works in human history. The first was this, that God sovereignly uses even the powers of the world, even nations and kings as tools to just accomplish His purpose. These things, the greatest of earthly powers, are not outside God's control. They're merely instruments in His hand. Assyria, the Lord said, is my rod to bring my chastening upon the people of Israel. Second lesson we learned was this, that the nations and the rulers of the world do not necessarily share or even acknowledge God's good purposes. They may be completely oblivious to the fact that God is actually using them, that they're tools of God to bring about His purpose. The Assyrian king never acknowledged God or shared in God's good intentions for his people. And the third lesson that we learned was that God will judge the sin of even those tools that He uses to accomplish His purposes. He will nevertheless judge them for their own sinfulness in that. And He would later judge Assyria for their evil, even though the evil that they brought about on Israel was ordained by God. Nevertheless, they were responsible for their evil acts. This is a biblical philosophy of history. And in this new section that we're just starting today, which is going to really take us for a number of chapters, it starts in chapter 13, but it really runs all the way to chapter 24, and, 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 and in, in a sense, all the way up to chapter 27. So we're talking about a good number of chapters. This section that we're about to start really just fleshes out those principles that we saw back in chapter 10. We're going to see those come out again and again as we un watch these chapters unfold. That God is working this way, not just through the nation of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, but through all of the nations of the world. He's bringing about His purposes, not just for one people or one nation, but He is working out His divine purposes in human history for every nation on the face of the planet and really for the entire world. 
The whole world is going to come to the end for which God has ordained it, and God's purposes for the, for the, for the whole world will be worked out. That's what we're going to see in these chapters. What happened with Assyria was not just a one-off, but this is, this is a one evidence of the sovereign God who controls all things brings them to pass according to His will in every nation on earth. Now, in this section then, we're going to discover that there are ten, count them, ten oracles of judgment. These oracles are prophetic declarations from God, uh, declarations of the purposes of God for the various nations of the earth. Chapters twenty, chapters thirteen through twenty-four, and and there are two sets of five oracles each. I want to just show you the kind of the first set, just to kind of scan through our text and see where we're going here. So take a look again at chapter thirteen. You'll see this first set of five oracles of God regarding His purposes for the nations. This first set of five begins in chapter thirteen, verse one where we read of an oracle concerning whom? Babylon. All right? So you may want to even highlight these as you go along or underline them. This is the first oracle. Then if you go down to chapter 14 and verse number 28, kind of in the middle of chapter 14, you'll see another oracle pronounced. And in verse 29, we see that it concerns Philistia. You remember the Philistines, right? Of course, of the fame... Uh, Goliath was the, a famous Philistine. This is the oracle of God concerning the Philistines. And if you go to chapter 15, verse 1, you'll see it again. An oracle concerning Moab, the nation of Moab. And if you go to chapter 17, just over a couple chapters, again, at the very beginning of the chapter, you'll see it. An oracle concerning Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. And then finally, if you go to chapter 19, verse 1, you see the fifth in this first set, an oracle concerning Egypt. All of these are God's purposes for the nations. And, and God is going to declare, prophetically declare, His purposes for the various nations on all points of the compass. I mean, this is a, a global sovereignty that he's exercising. You have Assyria up in the north and Egypt in the south and Babylon and Moab in the east and Philistia to the west. Everywhere you look, God is sovereignly working out his purposes in the nations. That's what Isaiah is saying. And then that brings us to the second of these five, the second five of these oracles. And the second five are a little bit different in this sense that rather than each of them being addressed to a particular, easily definable historic country, these oracles, some of them have symbolic titles, kind of mysterious titles, as if the oracles pointed beyond the immediate historical circumstances uh, in Isaiah's day. So, for example, in chapter 21, verse 1, you have, quote, an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Oh, what's that? Right? And you, you have to work your way down through the context, and you, you see that it, that it seems to be a reference to Babylon, but 
but at the same time, we're sort of looking beyond this, a mysterious reference to Babylon. And in chapter 21, verse 11, the second one of those is called an oracle concerning Duma, which just means silence. An oracle concerning silence. And as you read on, he's speaking in a figure about Edom. And then in chapter 21, verse 13 and following, he pronounces an oracle on various um, Arabian tribes scattered about in the desert. And then in chapter 21, verse 1, he pronounces an oracle concerning, quote, the valley of vision. You see that this is an ironic reference, actually, to Jerusalem. And then finally, in chapter 3, there is an oracle concerning Tyre, which has actually a very interesting parallel over in Ezekiel's prophecy that harkens back, in speaking about the king of Tyre, actually harkens back to the Garden of Eden. So there's a lot going on in this section, and, uh, and I, I hope that as we work through it, uh, that we'll begin to uncover it and really... Uh, see the the significance, the, the the implications of this for for our lives as well. All of this, all of these oracles, then these two sets of five oracles, culminate in chapter twenty four, where God pronounces through Isaiah His judgment upon the whole earth, the whole earth. This is a global scale. However, interspersed. With all of these pronouncements of judgment on the various nations, we actually have passages of hope, passages of salvation. And we see that God's purpose is not merely judgment, the judgment of condemnation, but also His purpose is to save a remnant of people from every tribe and nation on the face of the earth. And it culminates then in a little section from chapters 25 to 27, which really presents the glory of God for those people. A glory in which God, as Isaiah will say, wipes away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. That's where this passage ends up. So we're talking about something here. I mean, this, this bigger section which is kind of an all-encompassing theology of history. Isaiah's kind of a big-picture prophet. He's not just, just down here on an individual salvation level. He sees global implications of the gospel across the entirety of human history. That's what he sees. And I pray that we can see it too, this sweeping view of the entirety of God's redemptive plan. And, of course, all along the way, we're going to see that Isaiah, God through Isaiah, is dealing with the immediate realities of his day, the, the nations that were in existence and in Isaiah's own day, but all the way it points us to ultimate judgment and glory for the people of God. And really the fulfillment, this is where it becomes really practical for us. As we, we, we have now from our vantage point, we are actually looking backwards where, for the most part, Isaiah is looking forwards, prophesying God's purposes for these various nations around him. 
from our vantage point now, looking backwards on the fulfillment of those prophecies, we are encouraged in the sovereignty of our God who has always worked out things according to His will, who has spoken from of old the things that were yet to be and brought them about and, and why is that encouraging to us, friends? Because we're still waiting for, for the, the consummation of all of these things, right? We're still looking forward, in a sense, just as they were looking forward, to the, to the ultimate expression of a lot of these things. And seeing that God has been faithful to bring about every one of His purposes in the past then gives us hope and confidence to persevere in faith all the way to the end that God has ordained for us. Amen? You see how that works? I hope, I really do hope that that's one of the great, one of the great effects that this passage will have in my heart and in our hearts as we work through it together. Now, and that brings us to then the first of these oracles, uh, which begins in chapter 13 and verse number 1. The oracle concerning who again? Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. God's dealings with Babylon actually begin both this set of five oracles and the second set of five oracles. Now that is got to be significant, not an accident. And what I want to discover is why. Why is it set up that way? Is there some divine purpose behind that? And I'll tell you in the first place that God's purpose is not to just say how things are going to play out strictly chronologically. So it's not like, okay, here's what I'm going to do with this nation, and then I'm going to do this with this nation, and then I'm going to do this with this nation, and then another 10, 50, or 100 years down the road. It this is not the way it's organized. Assyria, Philistia were both overthrown before Babylon, but, but their prophecies, their oracles will come later. So it's not chronological. I think rather that the significance of Babylon being first in both of these sets of five is its significance, its significance is emblematic. In other words, you know, biblically speaking, Babylon is kind of the quintessential city of man, as Augustine said, right? It is the place where that represents kind of the epitome of collective human pride and autonomy throwing off the rule of God. We will lift ourselves up, right? Of course, that's what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, who lifted himself up as the God of the world. And his son who followed in his steps. And so God brought great judgment upon them. Why? Because this was the, this was the people that sort of epitomized, biblically speaking, it epitomized human pride and rebellion against God. And, and really it has a long history of this. Going back before Isaiah's day, think back to another place that sounds a lot like Babylon, the tower of what? Babel, built in that same place. 
And what happens there? We read that the people said, we will make a name for ourselves. We will reach up to heaven. We will be like the gods. Right? And God humbled such human pride there. And God will. God does. He will, in the end, humble. I'm going to tell you that God is in the process of humbling every human pride that raises itself up in rebellion against Him. Listen, if you're in Christ's kingdom now, you're in Christ's kingdom. You came in on your knees. You came in humble. And in the end, those who stand up to God will be humbled who do not humble themselves. The Lord is intent on doing that, and He showed that at the Tower of Babel. He showed it again in Isaiah's day in the, in the ancient city and people of Babylon on the Euphrates. And, and when you go to the other side of the Bible, you keep going forward in the Bible, you find Babylon coming up again, don't you? You come to the book of Revelation, John in Revelation. I mean, we're talking 600 years after the fall of Babylon, and he's still talking about Babylon. And God's going to bring judgment upon Babylon, mysterious Babylon. In other words, Babylon then becomes a kind of a kind of stand-in, a kind of representative of all human societies that are characterized by an intent to be autonomous and separate from the rule of God over them. This is what Babylon represents. I think that's why Babylon comes first here. It is representative of all these kinds of human societies that say, I will not have God to rule over me. I will have my way in life. All of these societies that say, I will be my own Lord and Master, thank you very much. This this is a Babylon. And when we read this text, we should remember God's judgment, not just on that ancient city all these many years ago, but on all who raise themselves up against His righteous rule. But Babylon did exist, of course, as a real historic empire. And uh, there were actually various phases of Babylonian kind of supremacy at different times in history. Uh, but the what's usually referred to by historians as the Neo-Babylonian Empire dominated for about a century um, around the time of Isaiah, the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. in what is modern-day Iraq. And uh, I think we have a picture on the screen here. This empire grew to become... Uh, or this, this people grew to become an empire in Isaiah's day, spreading kind of north and west and then turning south all through the Middle East, eventually to encompass Iraq, what, what are the modern countries of Iraq and Kuwait and Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel, as well as parts of Iran, Turkey, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. This was a pretty mighty Empire. It was a very clearly a world class empire. And we're so far removed from it. You know, it seems like, it seems like ancient history because it is, but it, uh, it seems almost unreal to us. But I mean, if you lived in this time, this, 
this was your reality. This was your world. You couldn't imagine a world not shaped by this great power. And though Isaiah did not live to see the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C., he saw it as God revealed it to him prophetically. God revealed his purpose for Babylon. And so through prophetic eyes, Isaiah pronounced that God would bring the mighty low. Now, how would he do that? How was God going to bring his judgment upon this great, vast empire? I mean, he could have done it any number of ways, right? He could have sent an angel like he did with the, the Assyrian army around Jerusalem, remember that, and, and slay 185,000 of their best troops in one night. God could have done that. God could have wiped out the capital of Babylon with fire and brimstone like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have sent a series of plagues upon them like he did on Egypt of old to deliver them. So how is the Lord going to bring his judgment upon the Babylonians? That's what we see first of all in verses 2 to 5, the instruments of God's judgment. Verses 2 to 5, the instruments of God's judgment. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave a hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. The imagery here, you know, is of the Lord calling an army to himself. And it's like, you can see the picture, right? This is this, this bare hill with no trees to obscure the view, and somebody runs up there and they hoist the flag, and, and that's the signal for all of the armies to gather together to battle, right? And the Lord's calling these people to himself. Verse 3, he says, I myself have commanded whom? My consecrated ones, is the way the ESV reads, and I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They came from a distant land, from the, land, from the end of heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. How is the Lord going to do it? How is the Lord going to bring His judgment on Babylon? Simply this, that the Lord will muster an army. He calls it a great multitude from a distant land. And this army that the Lord raises up is really not identified until you get down to verse 17. Now you see who this army is, right? Behold, I am stirring up the, the Medes against them. This is half of that famous duo, the Medes and the Persians, right? Originally, this, this uh, conquest of Babylon is led by the Medes and quickly overshadowed by the Persians, which would be um, pretty much the peoples in modern-day Iran. Now, notice, here's, here's what's fascinating to me. Notice what the Lord calls them in verse 3. This 
Medo-Persian army, this horde that will descend upon the, the city of Babylon. He calls them my consecrated ones. These people are set apart for the Lord unbeknownst to them. They are consecrated for the Lord's service. Right? Their task, he says, is to be my mighty men to execute my anger. So, in other words, their conquest of Babylon was actually an act of God. These are my. You see how my comes up again in this? My, my, my. This is my doing. This is my army. They're a bunch of pagan heathen, but they are God's tools. God is using them. He even calls them my proudly exulting ones. They're they're consecrated not because they're morally pure. They're, They're full of pride just like the Babylonians. In fact, every time the word proudly here is used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, it's always negative. This is not a positive thing. And yet these are God's proudly exulting ones. These are instruments in the hand of the sovereign of the whole world. Even the wicked are instruments in God's hands to bring about His purposes. And in verse 5, he calls them the weapons of my indignation, or the weapons of his indignation. And so, these are his army. And that is the point, right? God sovereignly controls all of the peoples and the nations on the face of the earth, bringing them, using them to bring about His own purposes. He uses nations and kingdoms of the world to do His bidding, whether that's to bring punishment or to bring chastening or to purify a people, to humble another people. And God, you know, God can use any instrument He wishes doesn't have to be a clean, pure thing for God to use it to bring about His purposes. He can use even a wicked people. Even those nations that are proudly exultant are His tools. And this is true not just with regard to Israel and Judah, friends, but with regard to all of the nations of the earth. We're talking about Babylon and Syria and Egypt and China and Russia and the United States and every other power on the face of the planet. The Lord is sovereign over them all. You can't miss that after going through a passage after passage after passage like this um, as we work our way through this section. God is sovereign over all peoples. And He's using them all to prepare us. Um, I mean, all of these things are being revealed here in order to prepare us for that day when He judges not just one nation or another or another, but all of these are here to help prepare us for that day when He judges the whole world. When He brings about, and this is really where this whole passage is going, when He brings about the day of the Lord upon the entire globe, when all of the earth's proud Babylons are brought humbled to His feet. The Lord is preparing us by revealing what happened to ancient Babylon. He's preparing us for that day. He's preparing, listen, He's he's trying to prepare you for that day. Young man, young woman, whoever you are, listen, God God is by this revelation 
preparing you, seeking that you would be prepared for the day of His wrath when it comes upon the world. And what will it be like in that day when God judges a people? Look at verses 6 to 8. Now we see the effects of His judgment. The effects that it has. Verse 6. What's the very first word? Wail! For the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. The day of the Lord is near. Now that's a theme that runs through the Bible, right? The day of the Lord. And we saw it first back in chapter 2, if you remember from there. And it's going to come up again and again in Isaiah as well as many other of the prophets. The day of the Lord refers to a time when God's sovereignty is put on grand display, when it is clear that God is sovereign, when it's obvious, when that happens and you know that God is in control, that is the day of the Lord, especially when God brings about His judgment upon the earth, when the proud are belittling God and boasting in their sin, and yet God has His day with them. And ultimately, of course, this is a reference to the great and final judgment of the world when all evil is eternally punished and righteousness is finally vindicated and rewarded. But of course, there are many penultimate days of the Lord, kind of uh, immediate expressions in history, throughout history, of God exercising His judgment on the world in a in a dramatic way. And it happens often when he brings an end to a nation for their sin, as God has done many, many times and doubtless will do in the future. This is the day of the Lord. And he has his day when his ultimate future judgment sort of breaks into human history in a dramatic way and the proud are destroyed, and all wrongs are set right again. So here in this text, we see that when the day of the Lord comes and when God's judgment falls, it will be a day of incredible anguish, right? That's the first word, wail. I mean, have you ever heard anybody wail? I'm not talking about just crying or weeping. I'm talking about wailing. Maybe you remember a situation like that where someone was in such anguish that their cry could only be described as a wail. That is what goes on when the Lord has His day. In Revelation chapter 6, when the seal of God's scroll of judgment is broken and He pours out His wrath upon the earth, we read this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Friends, that's what it's like in the day of God's wrath. 
It will be the kind of thing that will cause people to cry out in anguish, to seek for even the rocks to hide them from the face of the judgment of God, even if that means death. But I want to tell you that in the day of the Lord, friends, there is nowhere to hide. We are all in that day naked and opened before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And the sword of His mouth cuts even to the discerning of our thoughts and intentions. In that day, friends, who can stand? It is a day, the the effect that it will produce when God unleashes His judgment is, is anguish and wailing. And we see in verse 7, therefore all hands will be what? Yeah, here's another effect, right? All hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. The second effect is weakness and fear. I mean, we're talking about people who all their life were strong and powerful. You know, people can get accustomed to being powerful, accustomed to being able to get their way, accustomed to being the strongest, smartest, most powerful person in the room, and get accustomed to that. But when the day of the Lord comes, those people have nothing to say. Those people have nowhere to turn. Those people don't have the strength to mount any resistance at all. Their hearts faint. Because we're talking about standing before the One who is the Almighty. The One in whose hand is the entire cosmos. No one in that day will be in a position of strength Everyone will be weak and fearful. And notice thirdly in verse 8, and they will be what? They will be dismayed. And pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another and their faces will be aflame. They will be characterized in that day by agony and dismay. They will look from one to the other, and friends, I'm telling you, there will be no help in their compatriots in that day. There will be no help in their friends and their comrades. Those who in better days spoke with bluster and bravado will in that day be absolutely and completely dismayed. In that day, every man will be left completely alone. And that's what the Bible tells us, right? That every man must give an account of what? Of himself. Every man will stand, as it were, alone in the judgment of God. No strength in numbers. No, hey, well, we're all in this together. We can... can, We can push through. We can stand up to this. It'll be every man looking at the other aghast. 
and just taken in dismay. That's God's Word, friend. And it is good for us to grapple with that before the day, the evil day, dawns upon any of us. Before it comes upon you. And when God's judgment falls, we see thirdly in verses 9 through 13 that it will be entirely justified. We'll see in this section the morality of His judgment. The morality of it. The justice of it. Look at verse 9 carefully. Notice what is emphasized again and again in this passage. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its what? To destroy its sinners, right? Verse 10, for the stars of heaven, the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light and the sun will be dark in its rising and the moon will not shed its light. If you remember back from our study through the Gospel of Matthew a couple of years ago, we saw this kind of language being used over and over again in Scripture, indicating judgment on the great powers, the like the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule by night, so these rulers, their lights will be put out, as it were. And verse 11, you see again, the reasoning for God's judgment on Babylon. Why is he exercising his wrath upon them? He says, and I will punish the world for its what? For its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. What do we see in this section? When God's wrath, when His judgment falls on Babylon, it will fall on what? Sinners and evil and iniquity and arrogance and pride and ruthlessness. That's what it falls on. In other words, God is entirely just in His judgments. Friends, God's sovereignty never means that God is arbitrary. Right? His sovereignty should never be mistaken for arbitrariness we must not think of human beings as kind of like puppets and God is the puppet master and that's our version of the sovereignty of God. On the contrary, these people were being themselves to the full, exercising their sinfulness in every respect, their willful acts of sin, fulfilling God's sovereign purposes. And Babylon, who was God's tool to judge Judah is now being punished herself for her own sinfulness and rebellion. And God's punishment on Babylon will be a just judgment of their own sin and iniquity and and pride and ruthlessness and arrogance. And any chastening, any chastening that God brings into our lives, friends, is entirely just. 
right? Isn't it? It is. None of us should ever say, God, this is not fair. God is always just. And sometimes He is gracious to boot. And whatever eternal punishment will be meted out in God's final judgment someday will be an absolutely just recompense for all of the sins against the Almighty. It will be. It'll be just. We see in this context one more characteristic of God's judgment in verses 14 and following, and that is its inescapability. God's judgment is inescapable. Verse 14, And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee, flee to his own land. And whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants, even their infants, will be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. In other words, there's no escape, right? When God brings His judgment upon Babylon, there won't be any escape. There won't be any uh, mercy on those who, even those who surrender on the women and the children. God is going to bring His justice and there will be no escaping it. And verse 17, here is the concrete historical expression of the day of the Lord for the Babylonians. Verse 17, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. In other words, they won't be able to be what? Bought off, right? They won't be satisfied with just a little tribute money. These people are going to come in. They're going to conquer you. You're going to become subsumed under their feet. Verse 18, and their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not even pity children. And we read earlier in Daniel chapter 5 about the fulfillment of this, the near-term fulfillment. In Isaiah's day, after that, as he looked forward in, in prophetic vision, he saw this just as it would happen. And Daniel recorded it in his own day, Darius the Mede, in connection with Cyrus the Persian, in 539 B.C., came in, conquered that great city, the city of Babylon, put Babylon under the thumb of the Persian Empire. This is recorded for us, as I say, in the book of Daniel, as well as in other accounts, you know, thankfully... Uh, the Lord sometimes uh, in His providence records other things too that we might continue to see uh, what He has done. And there are a couple of other uh, extra-biblical records of this as well as some cuneiform uh, inscriptions that describe the fall of Babylon. Herodotus and Xenophon both describe it and uh, say that the city was conquered during a single night of drunken feasting. Of course, just as Daniel recorded. In verse 19, 
Continue in the text, the Lord says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will even pitch his tent there. Shepherds will make their flocks lie, no shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. I mean, you talk about desolate, talk about empty, talk about forgotten. It's not even going to be a place where, where the wandering nomads pitch their tents. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures and the ostriches will dwell there and the wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Can you imagine that? These once grand palaces, ornate, some of the wonders of the world and now it's just so empty and forgotten that wild animals are wandering through it and making their their homes in the places where rulers of the world once reigned. And now it's just a few jackals over in the corner. That's what the Lord said will happen. And its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Now, interestingly, when the Medes did come and conquer Babylon initially, they didn't destroy it like this. They sort of really took over that city and made it one of their the chief cities in, in the empire of Persia, a center of government. But in time, there were other desolations brought on that city and it fell into ruin and disuse. And for centuries, it was so lost that nobody even knew where ancient Babylon was. It was completely lost. It, nobody even remembered where it was. And finally, in the early 1800s, it was rediscovered. The ruins of that city were rediscovered. Here's a picture of the ruins from 1932. The, uh, the great gate, a beautiful gate of the city called the Ishtar Gate, beautiful blue glazed brick, massive, massive thing decorated with golden lions and 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 dragons that thing has been was sort of reconstructed in a in a museum in berlin i mean we're talking about a civilization that once housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world the hanging gardens of babylon one of the, this city that that had over a half million inhabitants one of the great centers of the ancient world and for centuries now no one knew where it was it was literally lying in the sands of the desert, forgotten, just like what? Just like God said. We're not talking about prophetic or poetic imagery here. The animals are going to lie down in your ruins. This literally happened. I mean, you can watch it. You can see it. And, uh, friends, just as surely as the day of the Lord came upon ancient Babylon, the day of the Lord will come upon the whole world. In other words, God is, 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 is predicting this near-term uh, event in order that we may all be ready for that great and final day of the Lord. And just as surely as His judgment was inescapable then, it will be inescapable one day. Just as surely as that day of the Lord brought incredible anguish upon people, 
Friend, the judgment of the Lord will bring great anguish upon all who stand before God's judgment seat. Just as it brought weakness and fear when it fell upon that ancient city, so it will bring trembling when every man and woman stands before the judgment of Christ. Just as it brought dismay, nowhere to turn for help, no one to look to in that day, so it will be one day. Just as there was agony and pain under the fury of God when He unleashed it through His instruments, the, the Persians and the Medians, so it will be when He unleashes His wrath in the day of His final judgment. And just as it was completely just when God brought His judgment upon that ancient people, so it will be completely just when He brings it upon the world. It will be a righteous retribution for all sin. And let me just say this, friend. Who can stand in that day? What hope is there for you in that day? I mean, in light of that kind of purposed, sovereign judgment from the Almighty God, what possible hope is there for any of us? And the only answer... The only possible hope is that that judgment has already taken place for us. And that happened for those who believe when Christ suffered, God's wrath poured out on the cross. And when He did that, He absorbed all of the righteous indignation of God that that was poured out on Babylon, that will be poured out on all of those who resist His rule and His reign, Christ took it all. Amen? And now we have in Christ, in Christ alone, a hope that when we stand in that last day, we will be judged not according to our own selves, but according to the One who stands as our representative, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just have to put it before you, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you hoping in Christ alone? Are you confessing the name of the Lord Jesus? Are you turning from sin and submitting yourself to Him and His rule and reign and trusting in Him? That's our only hope, friend. For the day of the Lord comes. It will come just as surely as it did all those years ago. May God grant us grace to be ready for that day. Would you join me? Father, please use this Word in my heart and the hearts of Your people to have its proper effect. That You would bring us out of an apathy about sin and into a living faith in Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name.